Okay, so we're getting toward the end of Lent. We've been focusing on sin. Yes, we still talk about sin. Uh, for those of you that are visitors, the rules are real simple. You can throw tomatoes, but no rocks. And um, we title it, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, to give you a glimpse of, of how we think about sin. Sin, at its core, is a violation of what God intended. We asked the question, um, several services, do you see God as a big killjoy in the sky trying to limit and control you and restrict you? Or do you see God as, as someone who is trying to protect you, who really desires your deepest joys, and he knows the best way to get there? So we entitled it, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Sin is not what we're created for. So let's look at where we've come in this journey, looking into sin. Sin leads to the loss of shalom, that wholeness, that peace, that sense of well-being that we're created for. Sin disrupts that. It brings about heartache and pain. It brings about corruption of the soul. The soul fills up with pollution and, 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 and evil thoughts and things of that nature. Uh, sin results in disintegration of the spirit. We, we begin to fracture important things around us. A good example is a marriage. One of you gets involved in um, sexual immorality and divorce is pretty soon to follow. It's very hard to overcome that. Uh, fractures, disintegrates. That's what sin does. Last week we talked about the wearing of masks and uh, how we have masks that, to keep us from speaking honestly and seeing each other for who we really are. This week we're going to talk about the tragedy of addiction. Another devastating piece of sin. You see, one of the reasons we're talking about this is in, in my generation and uh, the older generations, when you told us we were in sin, that was usually enough for us to make a stop. That means we're in trouble. And, uh, but with the younger generation, it's not that way. I've sat with many of the younger people, and one of the common questions is, well, I know my parents said that the Bible says that friends of benefits is sin. I just don't know if I agree with it. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And so... We didn't ask the question too much of what is actually wrong. We just said that's enough to know that it is wrong. But the younger generation really wants to know. So in all of my exploration and answering those questions and really researching and looking at this, this series kind of was the fruit of that. So let's start with what is addiction. Now last week uh, I said that in order for evil to do its worst, it needs to look its best. That's a fundamental principle. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. In order for evil to work, it has to present its look its best, which is an illusion. I, I wonder how many people we would avoid drugs if we held up a sign and says, here's a heroin addict 10 or 15 years down the road. That's what you're going to be. You, you want to try it? Right? Held up a family of a, a picture of a fractured family. Uh, a lot of anger, hostility, legal bills, legal wrangling, children who are unhappy and misadjusted. Uh, you sure you want to? Have that affair? Here's what it's going to look like if you want to do that. Well, we don't do that, do that, do we? No, no one's going to step into sin if they see the reality of it. So sin, by definition, has to masquerade as good for it to work. So there's a lot of literature on addiction. The world is full of literature right now. It's a very big topic. So I found a definition just to kind of give us a starting point. Addiction is a complex progressive, injurious, that means it causes injury, and often disabling attachment to a substance, such as alcohol, heroin, barbiturates, or behavior, sex, work, gambling, in which a person compulsively seeks a change of mood. 
In other words, you get this momentary feeling that feels good. It's an illusion, but it's momentary, and so you go after it because it feels good. Of course sex feels good. We're created for it. Pretty soon, if you're not careful, it becomes habitual and eventually addictive. There's a vast amount of research on the topic. I want to focus on the second aspect, not substance abuse. Plenty of counselors out there that are specialized in that. I use several of them, by the way. Not for me. For some of you. But what about the behavioral side of it? Sex, work, gambling. We're going to take a closer look at that in just a moment. My goal today is not to solve the addiction issue. Uh, That's way beyond my pay grade. But to help you understand that addictive behavior is a topic much talked about in Scripture. In fact, I'm going to argue that it's the norm in a fallen world. It describes us. It really does. It's a topic in Scripture that's often linked with habits, and it's also connected with sin. It's connected with sin in a very intriguing way. We're going to explore that in just a moment. But it also has hope, hope attached to it. Every place you see a passage on, on any of these habits or these sins or these addictions, there's hope right there in the same context. And that's one of the reasons why Christianity is so delightful, because of what it offers. We're going to come back to this. I believe uh, addictive behaviors are driven ultimately by a deeper longing. No matter how they start, they eventually center in distress. So it makes it addictive. It begins to take control of you and causes destruction. So it eventually centers in distress and in the self-defeating choice to relieve the distress. You experience something and you like it, so you do it again. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and you do it again. And the uh, one tries to cure the distress or meet the longing with the same thing that causes the distress. That creates a trap what we call a catch-22. That's what addictive behavior is. Because we are human beings, you see, we long for shalom. That was the first topic. We lose that, that wholeness, that fulfillment, and for a true God that will love us. We long for that. We're created with this desire to know God. Romans 1 teaches us that. For those of you that have embraced God in that journey, it becomes a force what Plantinga, I told you I was reading Plantinga's book, calls a, a vital spiritual force. It's a force that moves you toward the Lord. As a believer, your natural movement is toward God. If you find yourself not moving in that way, that means something is blocking it. That's what we call sin. That's the best way to think of sin in the life of a Christian. It's stopping that movement. And in order to continue on the journey toward really true fulfillment and joy, shalom, peace, all that, we have to remove that obstacle out of the way. Whatever it is, that's, whatever the sin is that's causing that. Like all idolatries, addiction taps into this vital spiritual force and draws off its energies to behaviors that drain rather than fill the addict. It creates more and more longing and you seek to fulfill that over and over again. You might think of it as a a blackmailer who steals your money. Every time you meet a demand, they escalate it. You can't feed addiction enough, in other words. James chapter 1, I'm going to start there. 
to help us grasp a real simple concept. James is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, books written in the New Testament. And so uh, James, who was with Jesus, has a lot to say. Some very important things to say about this. James 1 reveals that the longing itself is not sin. Okay? The longing itself is not sin. Now, I love our English translators who gave us our Bibles. Uh, I know several of them that are friends, and they have to make decisions. They have to make judgment calls on how to translate words. There's no language that translates naturally into another one without having to make calls. So I'm going to read this and highlight a couple of them to kind of clarify what I would like to say. James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, pause. The word tempt is the same word as test. The English translators, they translated either tempt or test, depending on the context, to help you grasp um, what, what God or Satan is doing. So here they translated the word tempt. God actually does test people. He tested Abraham. Jesus tested the Pharisees. Uh, God tests you. When God tests, his behavior is designed to uh, demonstrate and strengthen your faith, demonstrate to you, not to him. He wants you to become aware that your faith is real and that it's growing. That's what a test looks like from God. That same behavior by Satan is designed to break you. For those of you that are engineers, I kind of think of it in terms of destructive and non-destructive testing. So we have a piece of metal, and we say we can exert so much force, and it's not going to break. That's non-destructive testing. We test it, and it didn't break. So our warranty was right. But then we say, but it will break if you double it. So we double it, and now it breaks. That's destructive testing. Same test. Same series of tests designed to prove. And that's what's happening here. God is attempting with the things he brings into your life to demonstrate to you that your faith is real. Satan is trying to get you to prove that your faith is not real. So this is what's happening here. Let no one say when they're tempted that God's tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Some of your translations leave out the word evil. That's appropriate. It's not there in Greek. They put this here to help you grasp it, but at the same time, we're maybe communicating something that's inappropriate. They are dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Desires is a neutral idea. It's just a neutral idea. We all have desires. We're created for that. I love waking up in the morning after a new snowfall and think, skiing. That's a desire. There's nothing wrong with that. So the desire is not the issue. Look what happens next. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's the strategy with which we fulfill desires that creates the problem. So desire, which is neutral, leads to sinful strategy. And then when, it, when it's fulfilled, it gives birth to death. So James argues. So longing by itself, desire, this is where this idea of longing comes from, is okay. We're created for that. I have a friend who has a ministry dealing with sexual brokenness, and it's called uh, Second Glance Ministries. When we lived in Germany, uh, we worked with uh, several young soldiers, military soldiers, and uh, we, would, we would walk into, um, we'd, we went for a bike ride one time into a park and said, all right, let's stop and take a break. We've been biking for an hour. Got off the bike and turned around. And it's like, oh boy, there's like 20 young babes all topless. Everybody back on your bikes. 
And the guy's like, oh, no, no, we're tired. On your bikes now. We're out of here. Okay. Just what you need is uh, 20 young soldiers and 20 young topless babes. And, uh, boy, that's a tough mix. Okay. It's not when you see that and you feel that desire, that's a good thing. It shows you're alive. It's the second glance that gets you into trouble. It's the second glance that gets you into trouble. And that's what James is arguing. So longing tempted by evil leads to sin. Longing interpreted by truth leads to life. That's what James is arguing. So this corrupted desire, I'm going to turn to Galatians 5, a passage well known to you, what we call the lust of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. This corrupted, deeper longing is identified in the Bible as acts or desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.19. The acts or desires of the flesh, once again, this is a neutral idea. Having the desire is not the issue. How you fulfill it is. So separate out those. You don't need to feel guilty for the desires that you have. It's the action to fulfill it in a sinful way that causes the problems. Listen to this language. And see if you find yourself in this list. In fact, no, that's the wrong way to say it. You're all going to find yourself in this list. See how many times you find yourself in this list. That's the better question. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality. There you go. I'm on that one. Impurity. Yep, that one's me too. Debauchery, especially earlier in life. Idolatry and witchcraft. I'm not sure about that one. I could be. could be deceiving myself. Hatred. Oh, yeah. I'm on that one too. Discord. Uh, yeah. Do you know how easy it is when you criticize me to go tell someone else that you criticize me? That's just discord. It's good old-fashioned sin. That's all that is. How about jealousy? Fits of rage, anger. Find yourself in that one? Selfish ambition. Dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. I found myself in this list many places. These are examples of sinful habits that uh, sinful practices that become habits and ultimately become addictive. I read an article just two or three months ago. People that lie, they get a sense of pleasure out of that over time, and so they lie more. Hello? It's right here. Who said the Bible's not relevant? You name it. Whatever it is that you struggle with, that practice done over and over again becomes habit and eventually becomes addictive. So some of you that struggle with anger, it's very easy for you to pull that trigger, isn't it? For those of you that struggle with dissension and strife, boy, it's so easy to pull that trigger. For those of you that struggle with discord, boy, isn't that easy? It's just almost, it almost becomes natural for you to do that. Now, I realize there's a great debate about some of these addictive behaviors, whether they're genetic or not. Honestly, I don't know about that. It's way above my intelligence level and my pay grade and education level. I don't know if alcoholism is genetic or not. As a theologian, that's not important to me because redemption is necessary no matter the source. Okay? Redemption is necessary no matter the source. Now, I understand I'm being simplistic in my explanation, 
But I do believe that all habits and addictions are redeemable. Now, I didn't say eliminable. I don't know if you can eliminate them all. Not in this life. I love the way uh, my alcoholic friends address it. I am a recovering alcoholic. That's causing a distinction between that this will regain control that fast. It didn't go away. I think that's right because of this. It's buried. But it is redeemable. That's the hope of Christianity. So what's the answer to this? I want to compare two passages. I want to put them side by side in juxtaposition. I want, I want you to see a picture of what I think um, it looks like if you don't know Christ. And what does it look like if you do know Christ? Imagine trying to overcome. Think about this question as we work our way through these passages. Overcome an addiction without the Holy Spirit. Just imagine that. Okay? So in Romans chapter 7, it's a very controversial, highly contested passage in uh, New Testament studies. I told Mark what I was going to do, and he disagreed with me. He has a different position on this, so um, I hold a minority view, and if you want to hear the heretical view, go talk to Mark. Okay? He'll be glad to teach you the, <laughs> the different way, but we end up at the same place. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read it to you. I'm just going to read it, and I want you to think about Uh, the language that's being used here. I'll start in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now think about addiction in this context, right here. I think this describes every human on the planet. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Because the law said it was wrong, basically. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. In other words, I can't control it. I'm being controlled. Verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil, the very thing I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I find this law at work. Here's the law. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law working in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a very controversial passage. A lot of discussion on what's he talking about there. Basic question is, is this the description of a Christian? I do not think so. I don't think it is. I'll I'll tell you why. In the beginning of chapter 7, he says, I'm speaking to to those who know the law. In this context, those are the Jewish people. They love the law. They understand it. They haven't yet experienced redemption and they're trying their, their best to keep the law and they can't. 
All the way through this chapter, chapter 7, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit. It's darkness. He says in verse 14, a believer is sold into slavery to sin. In verse 23, he says we're held captive to sin. And yet that contradicts his whole argument of chapter 6. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 6, as he concludes that section, he says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. His outcry of despair Wretched man that I am, who's going to rescue me? It reflects total, continual defeat. It's a dark, despairing view of life in Romans chapter 7. One of continual frustration and capitulation to the inevitable. I think this is a description of a good moralist who hasn't found Christ. This is what life is like without the Holy Spirit. It's dark. Think about your friends. Be empathetic. Love them. They want to do good because they're wired for that and they can't. They just can't. No mention of the Holy Spirit. In this chapter, I is mentioned 30 times. And the Holy Spirit's not mentioned at all. But then, in chapter 8... He says at the end of chapter 7, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer to the person who has not found Christ is to turn to Christ. Then comes the Spirit. Now listen to verse chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He says in Galatians, we're going to see him again in a minute, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Turning to Christ is what brings freedom and lets you out of the prison. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so He condemned sin in the flesh. So in this chapter, 21 times the Holy Spirit's mentioned. In chapter 7, the Holy Spirit's never mentioned. I am mentioned 30 times. So you see the, the, the struggle? This is what it looks like when I try to do it on my own without Christ. It's a dark, desperate place. We're going to see in a minute in Galatians 5, which is a, which is a summary of chapter 8, what happens when a person turns to the Lord and they receive the Holy Spirit. Victory is now possible, which it was not possible before. Now listen to the last verse before I take us away from this passage. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, here's the reason he did it. Here's why he died on the cross. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. He didn't say so that we can fulfill the law, so that we can obey the law, so that we can keep the law. He never says that. In fact, he argues all throughout the Bible it's not even possible. You can't keep the law. On your very best day, you can't. You were going to fail. So he did it so that the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. It's passive. God is doing the work in us. What's the righteous requirement of the law? Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the righteous requirement of the law. That is fulfilled in us. You see, what makes you a witness for the Lord is not what you do for God. It's what God is doing in you. That he would show you mercy and grace in spite of bumbling around in the darkness. As Mark said, you're all knuckleheads. I should probably change that to we're all knuckleheads. We are. We're all idiots. And on your very best day, on your very best day, what you do for the Lord is not near as powerful as what the Lord is doing inside of you. And here it is. He has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in you. That's why Paul says a little little bit earlier that that love is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from. God is doing the work in you. On your most miserable day, on your day where you sin the greatest, he is still proud of you because he's the one doing the work. It's no other religion teaches this. None whatsoever. Okay. So I think Romans 7 is a discussion of the natural person who doesn't know Jesus yet. They can try as hard as they want and they just can't overcome it. They just can't get there. So what happens when a person does turn to Christ? Well, let me sum up this whole section by looking at Romans chapter 7, verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 describes the old life. Verse 6 describes the new life. Here's the old life. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit unto death. Here's the new life. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. I love the language of the King James. We mortify the flesh. We now can do that. We put to death these deeds that are killing us. How do we do that? That's where Galatians 5 comes in. Galatians 5, I just read part of it to you when it talked about the uh, deeds of the flesh. Now we're going to look at the other side of it. Um, In Galatians 5, we're talking about life in the Spirit. I think this is kind of a summary of Romans 8. Romans 5, uh, Galatians 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. I love that. You've been set free in Christ. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't serve these, these, these longings that are driving us to evil and destruction. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Then he talks about, uh, oh no, he says, if I walk by the Spirit, um, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's verse 16. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. This is what happened when you turned to Christ. You received the Spirit. We cannot possibly overstate how significant the Spirit is on this journey. We can't. You cannot do it by yourself. The only way you can do it is under the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you will not do whatever you want. It's called conscience. When you're tempted to sin, when that longing surfaces, you've got several ways to fulfill it. And when you're tempted to do it in an evil way and that conscience begins to bother you, that's the time to praise God. The Spirit's very active and at work in your life. 
That's his grace that he puts the Spirit there to slow us down, to stop us from going off the cliff. It's not a dark world, not for the Christian, because there is actually hope and victory possible. And then he goes on, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Now I read this list, think about it in the context of community. You cannot do any of these by yourself. They have to be in the context of community. How do you love without another person? Joy, it's not joy if you're all by yourself. Love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness. How do you show kindness? To whom? Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. It is not against the law to do these things. This is free. Have at it. Love your heart out. Show peace. Argue for peace everywhere you go. Demonstrate as much kindness as you possibly can by the Holy Spirit. It presents an entirely different picture, one of victory. So Paul is now arguing that living by the Spirit is the only way of fulfilling the purpose of the law and loving each other. It's amazing. But walking by the Spirit necessarily involves conflict. There's nothing easy about it. In fact, I would argue that walking by the Spirit is the hardest thing you're going to do in life. It's a decision that you make every year. It's a decision that you make every month, every week, every hour, every minute, and sometimes every second. It's the decision to not give in to those sinful impulses. So when you're, uh, when you're struggling with anger, it's to make making the decision that you're not going to get angry. When the, when the impulse is there because you've done it too many times to look at pornography one more time, it's the decision to say, this time I'm not going to do it. That's what it presents, a whole different picture. So now you have a choice, but you don't have an easy one. Walking by the Spirit is very challenging, and it almost always requires the help of others. As long as you stay sequestered in darkness, locked away, in a closet, closet somewhere, you will not succeed. Proverbs 20 says, the purpose of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. And depending on the, the complexity of whatever it is you're struggling with, uh, like I said, this is not easy. It may require higher levels of skill. Sometimes your best friend can help you. I'm so appreciative of those of you that have come to me and said, I struggle with pornography. Now there's two of us on the journey. We can talk about it. But sometimes you get into alcoholism and things like that. You get into, I don't know what, how they rate about higher levels of complexity. And sometimes you need people with greater skill, maybe a counselor, to come alongside and help you sort it out. But what I want you to get is that redemption is possible. Victory is possible as you learn how to do it. You do not have to be controlled by the sinful practices. Don't think of addiction as something that happens to an alcoholic. Think of addiction as something that happens to you. Every time you feel that impulse to lie, cheat, steal, get angry, divide, sow dissension, whatever it is, whatever it is, that's you, isn't it? 
That's us. So I'm going to leave you with a question. Your addiction may not be eliminated and probably won't be, not to glory, but it can be redeemed. In other words, you can control it. So what is the desire, the desire of the flesh in particular, that habit or addiction that you need to confess and from which you desire and seek relief? What is it? What is that desire of the flesh, that habit or addiction that you need to confess and from which you seek and you desire relief? In preparation for the offering and communion, I want to give you just a minute to think about that and just say, Lord, I need help in this area. Father, as we prayed at the beginning, we're so grateful to have a God who cares. A God who loves us so well. Thank you for being so personal in our lives. Thank you for the times we get caught in our sin as an act of grace by you to reveal and expose it. Thank you for knowing what to do because sin is so destructive Sometimes our lives spiral out of control, but you, you haven't lost control. Thank you for knowing how to help us. For knowing how to walk us back away from that cliff in a healthier direction. Help us, Lord, to continue to be a church that is safe for people to be honest about their sinfulness and to find redemption. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to take the offering. Thank you. Thanks for giving.
In preparation for communion, I'd like some of you to come up and get the cup and the bread ready. Some of you have asked, um, how do we choose people to come up here? And honestly, if you're a believer in Jesus and you want to serve communion, you're welcome to serve. If you've not done it before, just walk up here and tell me and we'll help you. If you're a child, we ask that you be with an adult. And if you don't have an adult with you, we'll, I'll stand with you as a child. And um, it's, it's fun. It's a very rewarding thing to do. I said a couple weeks ago that communion was uh, an expression